For more than 20 years, Adriana has set the standard in Victoria for delicious Mexican food. They are the only large-scale manufacturer of corn tortillas and chips on Vancouver Island. Adriana's The Whole Enchilada has daily specials. Enchilada Divorciada, Tuni Tacos, Bandito Burger, Taquito Feliz, and more. Did we pick up your curiosity for more Mexican meals? Pick up and take out. For more information, check adrianasthewholeenchilada.com or come to 2140B Keating Crossroad in the Keating Plaza. Try. Try to be soft. Try to be soft and try to be soft and try to be soft. And the world pushes up against you. Rough edges and grinds you down and try to be soft and try so hard to be soft can you feel yourself what is left of you what is left of you some of the things that my grandmother tried to instill in me was how to care for and protect my body From my mother, I learned about ways of presenting myself through dress, speech, and behavior in order to manipulate how I was read by others, namely white folks. She was trying to offer a space to combat racism and patriarchy. Obviously, by focusing on the way that I present myself places an unfair as well as ineffective onus on me to combat a much larger issue of systemic racism and colonization. But currently, it does make me consider the space of performing identities as a place where patriarchy and colonization can be destabilized and new empowered futures enacted. You're listening to Full Circle on CFUV 101.9 FM on the Songhees and West Saanich territories of the Lekwungen and Sanchothan-speaking peoples, commonly known as Victoria. On this episode, we're exploring the relationship between embodiment for Indigenous women and women of color, and the ways that visual and performative art can be used as a space for empowerment. As Indigenous and women of color, Our bodies have also been used as tools of justifying and continuing colonization. There is a direct relationship between our bodies, the theft of indigenous lands, and the continuation of forced labor enacted through a history of chattel slavery and contemporary models of prison industrial complex. Looking specifically at the idea of gender, Judith Butler, philosopher and theorist, put forth the idea that identity was something that needed to be acted and reenacted offering the idea of gender performativity, meaning that there's a set of speech and behaviors used to shape identity rather than identity being the lone source of our behaviors and speech. Historically, the bodies of women of color have been exhibited as evidence to reinforce racist, patriarchal notions and to justify colonization and support capitalism. For example, In the late 1700s, a Khoikhoi woman by the name of Sartaj Bartman was taken and forced to be a part of a traveling exhibition by Dutch doctors who used the size of her buttocks and genitalia to perpetuate ideas of black female sexuality and difference to European audiences. This period was the beginning of the study of what became known as racial science. Racial science was used to justify the domination of Africans as it positioned them as inferior to white people. Several books have been published about Sartage's treatment and cultural significance. 
Gordon Chippenbear said, She has become the landscape upon which multiple narratives of exploitation and suffering within Black womanhood have been enacted. It is argued that through the exploitation of Sartage, the woman remains invisible. It is the idea of remaining invisible that I would like to explore on this episode to help us understand how women embody feminism through performativity. We spoke with four local artists of color about their work. Farheen Haik, Simone Blay, Tanya Bedicue, and Joy Genda, whose work explores identity alongside their bodies, either through the lens of a camera or creative movement. The poem you heard at the beginning of the episode was a piece by Joy Genda, who you will hear from later. To begin this conversation, I spoke with Farheen after seeing some of her work exhibited in local galleries. What I connected with in her work is the way that she amplifies the everydayness in gestures of caring and making invisible work visible. Her art illuminates intimate work like caring for family that often becomes invisibilized in modern capitalist culture because it has been assigned to women. So, Asalaamu Alaikum which means peace and greetings, uh, which is what I usually say when I introduce myself. My name is Farheen Huck, and I have been living here as an uninvited guest on Lekwungen territory for 20 years, and I was born and raised on Haudenosaunee territory in the Niagara region, and um I'm uh, raising a family here. I um, teach. I have an interdisciplinary art practice where I use video, photography, performance, sculpture to um, assist me in making form out of my experience of being alive and being here. And the questions that I'm often asking in my practice that inform my work are, you know, what does it mean to be here? What, um, and, and that's, a you know, that kind of existential question of like, who am I? But what does it mean to be here? So what, what is my experience as a gendered body, as a racialized body, as a settler, um, as a mother, as, um, um, as a Muslim, so whatever is um, up for me in terms of the complexities that I'm feeling in my life become source material for my work. And often that work, those questions and the experience is lived out in my body. So I often um, use myself, um, whether it's performatively um, or photographing myself or doing live performance to create kind of form and expression of that exploration. Yeah, so that exhibition that you would have encountered at Flex Gallery was uh, a couple years ago, I believe it was 2016, and uh, the exhibition was called Being Home. And uh, you encountered when you walked into the space um exactly objects from my home um, and kind of like domestic objects. And there were often moving images or projected images on them. So for example, uh, a piece that you, uh, the viewer may have encountered um, was my kitchen table, this table right in front of us actually. Um, 
laying on its side, um, kind of the table legs kind of splayed out, um, and the, the, the surface of the table um, touching the ground and projected onto the surface of the table, which is now reoriented kind of to, to the ground, was a projection of my belly breathing. And so there's this um, odd um, uh, kind of enlivening that happened with uh, the table because there is this pulsing um, that happens. And then um, the grain of the table um, kind of meshed with the stretch marks on my belly. And um, that piece called Feast emerged from this improvisational process that I often go through, but this process I had around asking, um, asking myself and kind of being curious about how, how does the work that I do in my home um, and the work that my body does for my family, um, how, do I, how do I make that visible? Um, especially as a mother and as a parent, um, I was curious as a visual artist to challenge myself to kind of render visible the invisible labors that take place every day um, for mothers, for women, um, you know, in so many of our um, conversations these days about decolonization, like all the kinds of emotional labors that are um, contributed by women and racialized women and how they're not valued. And so I was curious about my, you know, I'd spent, this came after 10 years of kind of early childcare. And I was like, how, how, how has this work shaped me? And how is it shaping the world? And yet, you know, I still have had this experience that I'm mothering and parenting and, you know, feeding my family and my children. And then when I leave my house and like close the door and when I'm out in the wide world, that 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 work really has no importance or it's unspoken and that I couldn't even articulate it as real, real quote unquote work. And even though we've made so many gains um, um, through the various waves of feminism and there is an acknowledgement cerebrally, I think, about the importance of domestic work, it's not an embodied experience outside of our homes. We still hear people saying, I'm just a mom, I just stay at home. And our language hasn't caught up with our, um, hasn't caught up, but I think it hasn't caught up because we actually still don't, this we don't live in a world that's caught up still. We can articulate and write theoretical papers and have frameworks around this is important work and, you know, but until our economies and our public world value it and we're remunerated as such, then, yeah. So that was a lived experience that I was kind of shocked. And it came at the same time as I was experiencing this, like, um, this transition in my in my family life where my children weren't young anymore. Um, they're currently nine and 12. And so, you know, I had this 
the very um, common struggle of trying to carve out time for my practice and take care of my family and getting sucked into the belief that those two things are opposed and exclusive of each other. And so here I found myself having more time. They're both in school. And instead of rejoicing and being um, feeling this relief, which I also did uh, as I was working in the studio and um, creating movement and gestures to kind of give form to the questions around the labors of parenting, I found like this huge grief and loss coming up. And I think for a lot of my work, that grief and loss um, comes from this feeling of, you know, dislocation and separation and the impacts of um, living in this capitalist society, being a racialized body. Um, and this is one of the ways, you know, I think th- this experience can also be very um, universal if if you have chosen to have children. I th- I don't think there's anybody who goes unscathed like with this feeling of like trying to like you know con- control our children to f- like children are this beautiful expression of chaos and not conforming to time to a certain kind of economy or quote unquote productivity and so yeah um so this grief and loss came up and I found myself um reconsidering my relationship with day-to-day objects. And so what that looks like for me in my process was laying on my kitchen table. I set up a camera and I improvise movements. And so the feast emerged from hours of laying on my table. I, I had movement too, but one time specifically I was laying on my table and I, and this image came to me of Ah, like this is where I congregate. This is where we every day at some point gather. I this is where I serve my family. This is where I feed and nourish myself. And then I realized this is this is also not only does you know these gestures come externally, but my body has done that when I was gestating my children. But I continue like the the my body is the expression of nourishing, and so. It was like I was dissolving into the table and I had this real clear image of ah my belly. And then my and at that time I was working a lot with kind of the idea of the belly and it's not just my body, it's also this connection to earth and to land. And you know, um, I think the relationship between women's bodies and land and um, the mother, the mother, the divine mother is very apparent and was just really felt for me. Um, other works in that exhibition that came out of that process, um, were, um, you walked in and there was a piece called Oscillate. So, um, in the gallery, you encountered, um, a grouping of white chairs, um, two stacked on top of each other. Um, so kind of one chair holding another chair, like, and what the one chair was upturned with its legs up. And then another chair was just kind of kind of watching and the chair that had was upturned had a video playing on the bottom and um, the video on the bottom uh, of the chair so you would kind of look down and instead of you know somebody seated on the chair um, there's a video playing and it was of my legs um, oscillating kind of like a pendulum of a clock 
And that, again, that image came um, out of this kind of improvisation work that I um, do. And when I go back and look at the footage, um, there was a moment where I saw my legs hanging off the side of the table, suspended, and just going back and forth, like like my body is a record of timekeeping. And when, you know, there is a there is a complete alteration of time. And this is kind of what I'm speaking to about when you have children and there's there is this complete kind of disassembling of of one's life. And, um, you know, and we definitely live within like, okay, you have to get to school and there is still the schedule that's imposed. But, you know, children push that and they aren't as um, as oppressed by it. And what I'm interested in, though, is seeing it, because I think a lot of it is very blind, um, inherited, uh, unconscious. And so particularly with video and with performing certain movements that I find myself doing every day or creating new movements, I'm able to, um, some, uh, yeah, I'm, sometimes I'm able to see how how culture lives in me or express in a different way so that hopefully viewers when they encounter their work might encounter kind of a bodily experience or you know um experience um kind of see how certain gestures might live in live in them or how they're living in my body when you say those yeah the body is archive and performativity um feels like that um I'm like that definitely resonates and I feel like when I talk about um this idea of what's coming to me right now is like that last comment I was making around like wholeness and this idea of remembering um I believe that there is actually a um a bigger truth that lives in my body that lives in most of our bodies. And I absolutely believe that my body is an archive or an expression of, um, of my histories of my ancestors and, you know, and science is like caught up, like also caught up with that, with like intergenerational, like trauma memory, like genetic memory, like finally they've got scientific lingo for that. But um, absolutely um, this set of conditions that have taken form as this body in this time and space is an expression of, um, all the genetic material from my ancestors from different lands, different places. And that is a really exciting, um, overwhelming, dense, full and rich experience. And there's so much to work with. And the this act of remembering that kind of keeps coming up for me is, a, is feels like the imperative um, because there is a record walking around with me every day and it's I do feel like it is my task to to look in and to read that record and to know how to open it and to access it and so that is where my 
various practices. And for me, actually, when I say the word practice, it is a big word, but it's a creative practice. It's a spiritual practice. It's a contemplative practice. It's a um, family practice. Uh, it's can often be intellectual at times or attempts to be philosophical. Um, that's the work is to come back and um, to live from within this body and to listen because there is so much history and sometimes what wants to be said is painful and it's expressing ourselves. And I actually think we're all walking around f- acting out from our archive or from the record of past experiences that so we may as well know it and know how to read it and say, um, you know, I think that's part of the work of self-knowledge. Um, so when I, you know, started off by saying my work is always asked who am I? What does it mean to be here? A rearticulation of that is how do I read my own record? And how how am I an expression? And I'm really interested in writing and adding to that. And I think just by virtue of my in-breath and my out-breath and being here in this new day, you know, there is an addition and an updating and a continuation of that record. Um and I think that's also what's led me to work with my parents like, and my family and realizing if I want to understand myself, I need to understand how they live in me and, and then going back to our ancestral land and how that place is, lives in me and then also deepening my work in relationship to the territories that I live on now that fed my babies and helped me birth them. So um, that becomes... I can't understand myself without knowing the place I'm on, whose ancestral territories I'm living off of and breathing the air and sustaining myself on. Um, and the performativity is, again, I think just it's like, a, you know, we I perform every day and knowing that that's what I do. And so it's uh, waking up to that and saying, I'm going to perform knowing I'm performing as opposed to performing and not knowing I'm performing because it's a lot more fun too (laughs) to to know that I'm performing and when I know I'm performing I get to change it up and I get to push the boundaries and I get to write my own script a little bit For more than 20 years, Adriana has set the standard in Victoria for delicious Mexican food. They are the only large-scale manufacturer of corn tortillas and chips on Vancouver Island. Adriana's The Whole Enchilada has daily specials. Enchilada de Forciada, Tuni Tacos, Bandito Burger, Taquito Feliz, and more. Did we pick up your curiosity for more Mexican meals? Pick up and take out. For more information, check adrianasthewholeenchilada.com or come to 2140B Keating Crossroad in the Keating Plaza. Next, I spoke with Joy Genda about her work exploring the concept of body as home through photography. I felt that her ability to look at our bodies as homes provided a space of self-determination. Cool. Um, yeah, so my name is Joy Genda. Um Full name Joyous. There's a couple middle names in there. Uh, and I am a West African and white settler living on like Kwangan territories in what is uh, colloquially known as Victoria, British Columbia. 
And yeah, I I don't always think of myself as an artist because art has been something that I've used throughout my life as very much a coping mechanism, very much like a way to like ease my passage, to help me um, contextualize some of the things that I've gone through and some of the journeys that I've made. And so like it took me a really long time to even start referring to myself as an artist because I was very much someone who was like, oh, no, this is just like this is just a thing that I do. This is like journaling or this is just like me taking pictures of my friends. And and I think that, yeah, it's only been in the last couple of years that I've really started to view myself as an artist and as someone whose practice has like a coherency and a meaning. Um, yeah, in regards to my current practice, I've had a sort of fascination with my own image and form over the last few years. And it's just very much been something that's helped me to, uh, again, contextualize some of the things that I've gone through. I've had like a few um, deaths in my like immediate family and um with people that were close to me, I've experienced some loss. And I think that one of the ways that I've been dealing with that is through an examination of myself in the visual. I started to think a lot more about kind of how um, how the body exists as sort of like uh, more of a home for our souls, more of like a, a place that we are present in most immediately rather than the most um, the most intimate expression of our being. So I started thinking about how we use our bodies to kind of like more, how we moderate or modify our bodies to like express ourselves in the way we feel, even if it's like most simply as like changing our clothes or like our hair or we have tattoos and piercings and all of these things that we kind of do to our body but even more than the things that we do to our body but how we carry ourselves in our body and how we move our body and how we are within our body and I started really thinking about um yeah the body as the most intimate home of the soul or the mind or the heart, however you want to kind of refer to that part of your being. Um, And so I became really interested in doing a photography project of um, how, how individuals sit within their body when they're in a place that they feel really comfortable. So Um, mostly that was people's homes or even bedrooms. Um, so I would, I started out shooting myself. So I shot myself in my living room and it was a nude shoot and it was kind of just for me a chance to be really vulnerable in front of the camera and to really kind of like examine how I shaped myself in front of a camera and how I uh, changed myself and then to kind of push back against that and to be really honest and to like have that direct connection between myself and maybe a viewer or the lens that um, I was (laughs) using to capture myself. Um, And then I opened it up. Uh, It wasn't just to women. Um, It was to uh, really anyone who was interested in being a subject. What I really wanted to capture in that project and how I wanted to honor a relationship to a body that is maybe changing 
and a body that maybe isn't the expression that we want it to be or maybe doesn't fully, you know, fully express the way that we feel about ourselves or the identity that we share with the world. Um, But honoring the fact that that body is the home that we're in right now and even though we change it in the moment, we still we still honor what it does for us. This journey of self-examination and of honesty helped me be a lot more comfortable in how I moved through the world, um, helped me feel a little bit more comfortable with some of the kind of loss and the grief that I've been going through, um, and helped me feel a little bit safer in my own body help me with the ownership that I feel over my body and help me find beauty in my body. Because I think that, I think that that's something that I've, that I've had a lot of like struggles with where there's parts of myself that I find acceptable. There's parts of myself that I, I uh, think are normative or fit within the cultural norm. But then there's other parts of myself that I have a really hard time with accepting and that I have a really hard time with, honoring and like being okay with and finding beauty within but I think that taking those pictures and then having that objective distance to really look at myself and share myself with other people in that vulnerability and still having that and having people still be like wow that's beautiful or that's that means something to me helps me to really find that in myself and maybe it's foolish that it like it takes sometimes sharing yourself with other people to really find your own like self-image and honesty but I don't know I think that that's been like a huge part of the journey for me is that by continually examining myself I'm forcing myself to find the beauty in myself and so especially with nude photography it's like a certain level of intimacy that I think I think um, culturally we are conditioned to see as like a very great intimacy. Um, And so we see that when people share um, nude portraits of themselves, uh, they're looking for a specific type of attention. They're looking to capture perhaps like a sexual sexualized gaze or uh, um, or it's a very performative um, action in a way, which for me has been like a very a very interesting sort of uh, prejudice to kind of push up against. It's really interesting sometimes to then like have that like that juxtaposition of like what you think you're sharing and what people are getting out of it, right? Which again, like makes me so very careful with like what I allow myself to share and like how much of myself I allow to be consumed by the public. I think that as like specifically as like a femme person of color, um, I think that or just as a person of color in, di- in general, as like an, a black person of color. <laughs> Let me just further specify. But I think that something that I've really learned in the past like few years of my life since I moved back to Canada and like had to really like enter Canadian society was that like who I am as a person is something that I have to prove to people. People don't people don't meet me and like make space to know me. They meet me and they think that they know me through the lens of their previously defined expectations of me based on my presentation. And and I think that that's 
a, an unlearning that needs to take place is that that we we so often go into into experiences lacking the context to fully understand the the things that are being presented to us but thinking that we can make our own context from the from the from the things that have been presented to us previously, but which were so often taken away from the 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 people who originally created that and made consumable consumable for people that don't understand the cultural and like political and social context of the people who created that. Yes. Right. I think that lately I've had a really hard time uh feeling almost like valid in my art um it's been something that it's something that comes and goes but I think that like right now we live in a in like a place where there's so much um competition when it comes to art where you're no longer creating just because something brings you that passion but you're creating because you feel that you have to prove something or that you have to you have to create in order to like maintain relevance or to like uh yeah to compete with your peers and to like show up and be seen and I've been so tired lately I haven't I've had like so little energy for myself that it's made creating like really difficult and it's made it really difficult to feel that what I'm making um, is valid because I don't, I don't have this, I don't, I'm not feeling the spark, you know, like I'm not feeling this, this like drive, this rush, this like, this push of genius. I don't feel like I'm, I have genius behind me. I feel like I'm just like painstakingly like pushing one foot forward at a time, like just to make it through the day, the week, the month, the paycheck, God, the paycheck. (laughs) I think that like maintaining your momentum as like an artist or the more broad term as a creative is so hard and and we're in this place where like we're so often like looked down on if we don't have a constant stream of output. But again, like one of the things about being being within yourself and being honest to yourself and to the body that carries you is that there are still those times of rest. I think that it's it's like it's a very different experience sharing something through social media as opposed to sharing something in the immediate in the flesh. And I think that um, in March I was in Vancouver and I performed uh, three pieces for a fundraiser that was put on by the Black Lives Matter organization in Vancouver um, collective. And uh, it was a wonderful event um but it was a very new experience for me and the pieces that I performed um one of them especially were quite intimate and they were quite personal pieces um and it turns out that the videographer for the event didn't show up on time and so there was no like um professional video footage done of my performance um but it turns out that I actually quite liked that I actually really liked the fact that there was no evidence as it were 
But it put me in a place where I felt that I was performing with an honesty that I wanted to, but I wasn't afraid that it was going to be taken and and re reiterated over and over and over again um, without my physical presence as context. And I, I didn't want to be a sound bit. I was very present in that moment. And it was, it was a very like personal experience for me to be up on that stage. I really felt like I kind of, you know, had a small, like brief crack, you know, into, into an, into a place that even I don't get into very often. And I think that that's one of the beauties of like performance art and of being in a space where you give this gift to the people in front of you. Um, but it was so strange, like, uh, to perform this in front of these people and then to walk off the stage. And there was, it was like, there wasn't a separate area for performers. Right. So I walked off the stage into the crowd. Um, and it was almost like I didn't want anyone to say anything to me about that piece. You know, like I didn't want to go in and have people be like, that's beautiful. What does it mean? Or that's or thank you so much for sharing, which a few people did. And there was like a few there was like one or two conversations that I had that I didn't like that I, I thought were good and that I like I didn't begrudge. But to be honest, I kind of begrudged like a few people that came up to me and wanted to, to to thank me because I didn't want to be thanked. You know, like it wasn't it wasn't their position to thank me even. Do you know what yes. I yeah, and it was it was it kind of just like awoke this kind of like um knowledge within me of that, you know, sometimes you give people a gift and you don't want them to say anything about it because that's not the reason you're giving it to them. You're not giving something to be acknowledged. You're giving it because you need to you need to share it and maybe they need to hear it. Next, I spoke with Tanya Bedicue about her work as a dancer. Awesome. So my name is Tanya Bedicue and I, I live here in Victoria, B.C. I've lived here for 12 years, originally from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Uh, outside of work, I spend most of my time dancing, which is something I'm very passionate about. I've done that since I've been little, but have really just enjoyed a different level of it as an adult and exploring how I can do that as sort of like a creature passion that I have. And so I study many styles. I do, I've done jazz, I've done hip hop, I've done uh, contemporary ballet, uh, classical ballet, uh, and this lovely class that we have at the studio called E-Funk, which is really just a performance style that is sort of dance party focused, but there's also this added experience of character when you're performing that I don't think you often will get in other dance styles. And so um, that actually was sort of a style that drew me towards this new opportunity to participate in what we call the Provocateur Collective. And that collective is really just a group of women who, again, perform in different styles and have sort of this, I want to say, persona that they want to explore and how they perform. And it's it's not about, we, we call it provocateur because it sort of plays on this idea that we are drawing upon this part of us that's uh, connects all of us, but it's quite intelligent and it's uh, comedic and it's sort of a, a full character um, that is relatable to anyone who were to engage with one of the you know, one of the performers. So for me, 
I was drawn to Provocateur, we know when we first looked at it, as just a chance to explore story and expression, um, but to do it in a way that was like fully entertaining. So that was what really drew me in. And um, a lot of a lot of dance for me has been about being a canvas for someone else, um, which is, you know, in a lot of ways, wonderful. You're helping to tell a story that they are placing in front of you. But what drew me to Provocateur was the idea of telling story from my own perspective, but also shared story with others, you know, especially women in particular. And that was, you know, a, a, an immediate attraction for me in terms of wanting to be a part of that. Do you find... Like sometimes I talk about the experience of being a woman of color and there being a narrative that precedes me before I show up, before Mm -hmm. I perform in a space. And I'm kind of curious about your experience around that. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, In the collective as it stands, there are no other women of color that are there, different ages and different body shapes and, you know, styles, um, but not uh, women of color. And, you know, I say this with a full sort of respect for those who are involved and, but also for myself, knowing that there is this, there is this sort of, I would say, I hate to use the word quota, but like this idea that you have to, you, there's a, you're representing more than just yourself when you come to the table. You are carrying uh, a slice of the pie that you may not have come into the room expecting to carry. And, and there's an awareness that you are kind of representing something in this group that isn't expressed by anyone else. So, and it goes on, it's unsaid and it's more of a, uh, uh, something that is both defined and experienced by myself personally. No one has given me that role or a profile that says thou shalt, but I'm quite aware of the dynamics of the group and and kind of the layers and colors and tones that um, we each are individually supposed to bring. And who I am as a woman of color is part of that. Uh, I think that in the context I find myself in, being a woman of color sometimes gives me access to a seat at the table. And in many ways, there's there's a bit of tension with that, wanting to be at the table, but not always sure if I'm at the table because of what I actually bring or more because I'm what I'm intended to represent or the diversity I'm supposed to express when I'm there. And so uh, there's tension with it, but I think there's also that challenge of, okay, I'm at the table now, what am I going to do with that? And how am I going to tell my story? And also in many ways with a sense of pride, uh, demonstrate where I come from and what I believe in my experience. But yeah, there's that tension of, of kind of wondering the why behind my um, access to, to the opportunities that I have. And there's more to me than, you know, the color of my skin and all of us, of course. Uh, but the story behind the color of my skin or, or sort of my history is a great Uh, amount of intersectionality um, that I don't think is always appreciated when I'm asked to come to the table. So for example, I'm a first generation Canadian. My parents are from West Africa. Uh, I speak only English. I don't have, you know, uh, a very dynamic experience of my own ethnicity, if that makes sense. But for me, I, I didn't fully embrace that I was still a shock to other people. 
And so often I'd get the question of, oh, well, tell me where you're from and, you know, tell me about your your ethnicity. And I'd tell them I'm from Winnipeg, Manitoba, and that I'm a first generation Canadian or in some way describe to them that I don't have that. Uh, I don't come from another place where I can tell them a deep story. They kind of have this moment of, oh, that wasn't what I was looking for. I wanted to have something. I wanted to hear something more from you. I wanted something deeper. And to give them something that maybe wasn't what they were looking for sometimes feels a little bit like lacking. And I think, you know, coming back to dance and expression, I've I've gotten this great uh, sort of opportunity or this ability to to tell that story in how I want to tell it using dance, using performance as a way of bringing that forward. And Uh, You know, for me, because I've spent so much time as a canvas, I haven't really explored it to the level that I really want to, but I'm opening that door now and really looking at what does it mean to tell my own story and also to just bring light to the complexities of the of the way we look at individuals that it's it's rarely you know what we see on the cover is what we get and how to actually spend some time exploring that with individuals, whether it's through dance performance or just in conversation and how we engage so. I could feel that so much of my life was driven by systems and institutions that I was placed in. And, um, and those institutions give you guidance for how you should be as an individual. And I realized that rather than looking at what was in my hands, I was looking to what people told me I should be or how I should, you know, engage with the world, how I should project. And so the performance for me was really looking at um, my role as a person, my role as a woman, my role as a dancer, and realizing that I had never really given myself enough to enough time to look at what was actually in my own hands. So um, there's a couple of lines in uh, in the poem, and I think you know maybe some will interpret that uh, the lines a little bit more clearly. And it talks about being a canvas, you know, um, wrapped in linen, soaked in bleach. This idea that um, we have been asked to lose ourselves so someone can place something on us. And um, in the process, we may not rediscover who we are. So that's what that piece was about. And it was about really taking note of that institution um, there was a portion of the piece where I actually had two other individuals on stage with me and they were sitting in these chairs and that's actually how I started the piece. I was in these chairs with them and then I sort of broke away from, from that, that feeling of being attached to this system and you know, discover what was in my hands only to return back to that chair. So I think that's the struggle is that it's a daily thing. It's a a weekly thing. It's an ongoing thing is you have to hold yourself outside of the system. And every time you feel like you've pulled yourself away, there is always something that's drawing you back in. So um, that was what that piece was about for me. Probably about seven or eight years ago, uh, me and a few friends just decided we wanted to pour into an issue that we'd started hearing a little bit about uh, around the issue of human trafficking around the world, very much this big global issue that was happening over there. So sort of at an arm's length from us, and we just developed a desire to support it. And, you know, myself personally, whenever there's an opportunity to to serve, uh, to raise awareness about things, I'm, I'm keen to be involved. But this one was different because I wasn't directly connected to the issue in the way that I really needed to be to um, to really engage and to be deeply motivated to do something different. So as I sort of 
you know, did fundraisers and, and, you know, did campaigns to raise awareness, local walks around town. Uh, I got the opportunity to really just dive into some research about what does this issue actually mean in my own community or in Canada. And a huge part of that was just examining what it means to be a trafficked person. And so, yeah, um, a lot of my work in the human trafficking world is looking is looking at what is vulnerability and what is the definition and our understanding of, of true freedom. So I'll try to sum up my 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 definition of this with a with a bit of a, a analogy or a metaphor. So in Canada, we have this lovely thing called freedom and for us, we think that if freedom is given to everyone, then the choices that they made make are based on the um, expression of that freedom. But I want you to imagine that freedom is is like a like a, imagine a million dollars in your hands, and you have all the money in the world to do what you need to do, but you get to the store and you realize that there are there's nothing on the shelves for you. There's no food. There's no clothes. And in fact, the only things that are available to you are are the least of, of what you need. And so you walk into that store with all the freedom in the world, but you have no choices. And that leads you to what we, I would call a constrained choice. And to me, that's not freedom at all. And so when I see the decision that individuals might make as they, as they enter into, um, let's, let's say, into... Um, prostitution, as an example, or the sex trade. Um, It's not always made with a fully free choice. And I think a lot of that has to do with the context in which they find themselves in. And so for me, it's not a question of, are their choices right or wrong? The question is, do they have all the choices in front of them to start? So that's where my work has shifted as it relates to human trafficking and uh, particularly around women. What can I do in my capacity to ensure that women truly have all the choices in front of them to uh, make the best choice for themselves, for their families, for their children? Um, and and to me, that's really the, the source of what we need to do to fight human trafficking in our own country. Finally, I spoke with Simone Blay. In addition to being a performer herself, she is currently working on a documentary about Black dancers in Victoria. Simone's background in gender studies and her work as part of a doula collective ground the work that she does in feminism, indigeneity, and experiences of African diaspora. Yeah, so my name is Simone Blay. I'm a dancer, a poet, and a sex educator, Youth for Youth. Um, that's what I do. That's who I am. That's what I stand by. I've always loved to perform. I've always been a dancer. Um, I'm very interested as well in like women's empowerment, sexual liberation, that kind of thing. Like when I was probably, I want to say 14 or 15, um, there was the first slut walk in Toronto And I went to that with my mom. Like, that's my mom for you. She was like, yep, we're going to like, and we got interviewed by CBC. And it's so funny because the woman who was interviewing my mom asked, "Um, why would you bring your daughter to something like this? And she was like, I didn't bring my daughter. She wanted to come and I wanted to come too. So we decided to go together. So that's the kind of politics that I was raised in, in terms of kind of, um, 
you know, like sexual identity, sexual liberation, that kind of thing as a woman. And I think that it became definitely um, more specified as the way that relates to me as a woman of color when I moved to Victoria five years ago, where um, I started dancing here and the dance scene is so, so white. So yeah, I guess just a lot of different things made me want to go into burlesque um, as a space of sexual empowerment as a woman, as a woman of color. Um, And burlesque also also feels like a bit of a safer space than like than clubs in terms of, um, you know, understanding the politics behind it rather than just going there for the show. I wanted to ask you about the choreography that you uh, created for the show Supernova that you did with Lindsay Delaronde. Yeah, um, so that was uh, a duet that I did with uh, Yamila, um, another artist, and um, it was exploring Afro-Caribbean indigeneity. Uh, So originally I was asked to uh, be a part of Supernova by Lindsay Delarond um, in one of the uh, groups that was the people were already kind of selected, and um, it was trying to incorporate everybody's story of indigeneity. Um, There were probably about five or six people in the group and they're all wonderful people and I loved their piece. But something about it felt really for me, like as a mixed person, it felt truer to me to tell the story of Afro-Caribbean indigeneity. Um, And it, it just felt like the honest thing to do. And so I asked Lindsay whether it's possible to uh, create my own piece as a duet. And she said yes. And so, um, yeah, that was definitely a a challenging experience. Um, It it was really powerful. Um, I think that the really awesome thing about that duet was... um, it really wasn't about the final product, but really it was for me practicing working in like a decolonized methodology where we're actually prioritizing each other's health. And, you know, if somebody's late, somebody's late and they're late and that is what it is. And, you know, um, you know, drawing inspiration from different things. And Yamila had to go home to the Dominican Republic Uh, for like three or four weeks and was coming back the day of the show or like the day of the first show yeah and so like stressful right but then also just trusting that if you know you're we're hoping to tell you're hoping to tell your story of your family and so what better thing than you going home to be with your family right up until the moment of the show yes May I ask a little bit about the doula work that you do? Maybe if you um, talk about the collective that you're a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I'm part of a collective called Nesting Doula Collective here in Victoria. Um, and this is a collective of uh, folks who su- provide support for um, people who are giving birth, um, people who are pregnant, and supporting all outcomes of pregnancy, um, whether that's termination, birth, uh, pregnancy loss, anything like that. Um, and all everyone in the collective is Indigenous or a person of color. Um, and so, uh, you know, you can look with like, statistics, 
stories, anything. Um, it is a fact that uh, people of color and indigenous people get treated worse within the healthcare system. It's not really a, um, it's not an opinion, it's a fact. And so um, doulas act as, a, as advocacy um, in hospitals when people are giving birth or, um, you know, support people for, for people who don't have the family support. Um, and so Nesting Doula Collective works to um, bring back the resurgence of doulas of color within our own communities. Thank you so much. Um, what was it that I was reading? Was it who, who was it that said something like your life is a love letter to the world or something Ooh. like that? And I, I I think of you when, you know, in hearing that quote because of what I was saying earlier, the way I see you taking in all of these things, but also like truly embodying these things in your life. And well, thank you. So thank oh, you. It's beautiful. inspiring. Aww, you inspire me too. <laughs> From these artists, I have an understanding that while our bodies have been and continue to be used to perpetuate violence, our bodies are a space of empowerment and self-determination. The more we can interrogate systems through our experiences and actions, the more we can destabilize systems of oppression and bring about the freedoms we want and need. I want to acknowledge that gender is a performance informed and enacted through our bodies, and there is an absence of trans women in this episode. By only including cis women in this conversation around embodiment and gender performativity, it perpetuates the binary thinking associated with the colonial project. Queering spaces through the inclusion of trans and non-binary voices serves to destabilize gender norms imposed by colonialism. And this is critical to decolonizing work. So this conversation is limited and not comprehensive in that sense. This episode of Full Circle was produced by me, Kemi Craig, with help from May Lynn, Melanie Loom, and Nicola Watts. Our executive producer is Mary Decker. Thank you to our guests, Farheen Hack, Simone Blay, Tanya Bedicue, and Joy Genda. This program would not be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada. For more than 20 years, Adriana has set the standard in Victoria for delicious Mexican food. They're the only large-scale manufacturer of corn tortillas and chips on Vancouver Island. Adriana's The Whole Enchilada has daily specials. Enchilada divorciada, tuni tacos, bandito burger, taquito feliz, and more. Did we pick up your curiosity for more Mexican meals? Pick up and take out. For more information, check out adrianastheholeenchilada.com or come to 2140B Keating Cross Road in the Keating Plaza. If you like this episode, you'll love Full Circle's episode on burlesque, which also touches on feminism and embodiment, called Burlesque, BIPOC Women Reclaiming Bodies.